Today on episode number 480 of the Teaching in Higher Ed podcast, Teaching Philosophy Outside with Ryan Johnson. Welcome to this episode of Teaching in Higher Ed. I'm Bonnie Stahoviak, and this is the space where we explore the art and science of being more effective at facilitating learning. We also share ways to improve our productivity approaches so we can have more peace in our lives and be even more present for our students. I am so pleased to be welcoming today's guest to the podcast. Ryan J. Johnson is an associate professor of philosophy at Elon University in North Carolina. He has written three monographs, and since Ryan is with me right now, I am not going to attempt my French, and Ryan is going to tell us what those three monoliths are, including pronouncing them in French. Sure. The first one is the Deleuze Lucretius Encounter, then Deleuze a Stoic, and the more recent co-written one with Pico Mandelin Gray is The Phenomenology of Black Spirit. Thank you for doing that. I could have handled phenomenology. (laughs) (laughs) I appreciate you sharing all three of those titles with us. Additionally, Ryan is the co-editor of Niche and Epicurus, Contemporary Encounters with Ancient Metaphysics, and The Movement of Nothingness. His current book project is on the radical abolitionist John Brown. Ryan's teaching is an experiment in improvisation and, as you'll hear a lot about in this episode, occurs almost exclusively outside. And Ryan, tell us about three things that you love that we can learn more about if we read your bio. Um, I love John Coltrane. <laughs> I love jazz. I love trains and and walking with my wife in cities. Oh, wonderful. I was embarrassed because I emailed you at some point. And I was emailing you, I mean, as I often do, early in the morning or, or late at night. And I thought that I spelled Coltrane, C-O-L-T-R-A-I-N. And I thought, oh my gosh, that's so embarrassing. I'm going <laughs> to back and apologize and be saying, it was late, it was late. But I went back and I had spelled it correctly. So no need to apologize. But now I've told the world about even just thinking that I might have misspelled it. <laughs> well, I am excited to have you take us back in time although this is not the most cheerful time for most of us in our lives, but take us back to the fall of 2020 when you were required to return to teaching in person and talk a bit about how you approached that experience. Absolutely. But I also want to say thank you so much for having me on this. I'm a big fan of the show and it's a, it's a delight to talk with you and about these things in particular. So after the world shut down in spring of 2020, most people stayed online but I was required to go on campus and seeking to cultivate the kind of engaged educational experience that I and Elon has pride yourself on. I tried to find ways to do it safely. And as being in the American South means you can be outside almost the whole year, I started to notice around campus these large wedding tents, asked about them, and then started to experiment with them. And as I did that, I started to notice all these things about campus that I didn't, or that one does not, as one moves through rather than sits in and resonates with, especially the sounds. 
What are the dominant sounds on campus? What are the kind of patterns of which people move? What are the movement of the trees versus the light versus the animals versus people? And sort of tuning to the ways in which the campus was alive and start to see those for the possible, for their educational potential. You're reminding me a bit about the Mary Oliver poem, mm-hmm. Instructions for Living a Life. Pay attention, mm-hmm. be astonished, tell about it. You've kind of gone through all of that and now you're telling about it. I know you talk a lot about this in your writing and at Elon, but it's so fun to get to have this conversation. So you're telling us a little bit about how you were paying attention in some yeah. different ways. What did you notice about how students were paying attention in some different ways? A, a bunch of things. I'll say two in particular. The first thing I noticed was the distractions. And I initially thought in that transition from inside to outside that these were bad. And of course, there will always be bad distractions. They usually have to do with cars. I also am not a fan of, of cars. <laughs> um but I didn't notice how certain kinds of dis- what seemed distractions actually were ways of bringing together. <laughs> and that when we would hear or experience things, noises, whatever, we would come to experience them together and we would use them. They would begin to integrate into our, our discussions and maybe even more so our awareness of ourselves as a class. And that gets into something later on that the publicness of the class. The other thing I noticed was just the energy in in the room. And I say the energy and attention to connect that because as everyone who is taught inside learns, it can be drowsy and people can fall asleep and no one fell asleep and no one looked drowsy. And I think I had, I started to suspect a lot to do with the way in which the sounds, the light, the air invigorated our conversation. And then that kind of energy brought a different kind of, of attention. There's so much around attention. And I, I remember, gosh, a number of times early on in the podcast, people being critical of our use of the phrase pay attention and specifically the word pay as yeah. if, you know, our students owe us something. They need to not only pay tuition, but also pay their attention. And I think of that as in just wanting to be careful, you know, what, to what extent do I need to live and try to live in someone else's world and try to control them? And I certainly have evolved considerably over the almost 20 years I've been teaching in a higher education context. I feel freed from that in a really healthy way. I'm, I'm grateful for that, that transition in my own approach. Did you ever have that where, where you felt this, or maybe you still do today, just this pay attention to this is really, really important. And sometimes it comes from really good places. It's not necessarily a bad, you talk about bad distractions versus good distractions. And so I'm attempting to not say bad, pay attention to me versus good, because part of why we got into what we do is because we care about these things so deeply. And we think that they're important in our lives and in the world. Yeah. You know, I, my first reference to a suggestion will be to uh, Jacques Rancière's The Ignorant Schoolmaster. And there's this, 19th century French pedagogue who had this radical principle that all intelligences are equal and takes that as the basics. And I take that very seriously. And I'm not really actually concerned in evaluating ranking intelligence at all. And if you are, I'm a little suspicious of that, right? And so his idea of the relationship between the teacher and a student is not intelligence to intelligence, the banking model, but instead will to will. So what a teacher ideally does 
is foment, increase, and intensify another's will, not of a certain thing, but just at something. And so often what I simply do is structure a classroom by ways of intensifying one's will to learn. I often try to think that these kind of things are what we should focus on a bit, but I kind of structure my classrooms in a way that allow those to be flexible. So that if I say, let's read this book, the ways in which one read it or the things that one takes from it, I want to take those from the students. So then if I have a variety of these intensified attentions, and I would love etymology so that, that intensity and attention is, is, is important there. My role then is to be kind of like a conductor and harmonize these attentions and these intensities so that we can cr collectively create some kind of ed educational experience. Oh my goodness. <laughs> I don't even know where to begin, but let's start with, tell me more about the etymologies of intensity and intention. Yeah, I should check real quickly to make sure this is true, what? but attention is tenere. Uh, so ah means at, uh, at, and ten means to hold. And intensity, I think it's the same thing, yeah, int. So it's holding, tenere is in, tenere is to hold, and in is, you know, which in. And so they're both kinds of holdings, mm. right? They're both kind of holdings either at or within. And so those sense of being, of holding, of being, holding something together, of being beholden, of, of all those kind of things, I think are involved with, or as soon as you start going to these etymologies, and it's just an easy one with intensity and attention. A book that I really enjoyed reading on this topic was James Lang's Distract, Distraction or dis Distraction or Distracted. Now I have to go look at <laughs> up. Sorry, James Lang. <laughs> <laughs> um, I'll put it in the show notes. I'm sorry I failed him. At any rate, he really gets us to not think about as if it were ever possible to get rid of all distractions. And oh, especially yeah. as if it were possible to get rid of all distractions through a method of compliance or some form of punishment for or restriction, that kind of thing. And mm -hmm. I think that his approach, and you just really spoke about this, is, and, I, and I'd like to, to have you share even more. But rather than think that we could, even ourselves, remove all distractions from our own lives, why would we expect that from other human beings when that's, I mean, I do you know anyone who's no. able to do no. that? And then, and then, but also what I love about your analogy of being a conductor and harmonizing, it brings in not just the diversity mosaic of, uh, I'm, of course, I'm mixing metaphors here because that's so much fun, but just beauty <laughs> of the kinds mm -hmm. of people that we get to work with in teaching and learning. But also, you think about most good music, it's not all the same volume the whole time. Mm -hmm. So the ways in which a good conductor would, it's, it's, so it's, rather than thinking, I need to have all of the attention all of the time. You, you talked about holding things, and I believe at some point you also talked about pointing at things. Does that Did I get that phrase correct? Yeah, for sure. Absolutely. Yeah, I was thinking about rather than mosaic, keep it in musical medleys. Or something yeah, like that, right? yeah. Um, yeah. So just, I guess the first thing is, well, what kind of world, what kind of experience is it to be completely free of distraction or as much as possible? Prison, a solitary confinement, right? Or, and this is an interesting way, like it monastic life <laughs> right so there's an interesting two versions of that same kind of thing but of course if we're preparing students to live well which is maybe one thing that philosophy is always trying to do education is always trying to do then prepare you know this artificial 
constraints by removing abstractions, as if when you're in the world and you have a job and you're a parent or you're a partner, as if they're not, you're just bombarded with distractions. So <laughs> what are we doing there if we're trying to get rid of distractions? And this is one of the things I really learned about going outside was that distinction we mentioned earlier between good and bad distractions. And so if you think about attention in, uh, environment, in an environment where distractions are gone, like inside a classroom, because classrooms are meant to be you know, cutting off the distractions in a way, right? I'm always struck by what my um, former colleague and my great teaching inspiration, Anthony Weston, said is, it's so funny that we do philosophy or teach philosophy, which is supposed to be about the world, by literally closing the door on the world and the new classroom. And so, you know, in some fun way, I want to throw that door open and go outside and engage the world in all its diversity, all its madness, and all its life. And so when I'm outside, I used to be annoyed, or I started to be annoyed a bit by like paying attention or distractions here or there, but I started to have these good and bad distractions. So what do I mean by that? A good distraction is one that can help us come back together can allow our, our attention or our stamina to have a release to return. So example, when you're having a, like an intense conversation like in a philosophy class, and a lot of my classes are about race, so they're you know multiply intense, <laughs> sometimes you, not sometimes, all the time, people, their mind just wanders, right? And when you're in a room, what happens, I think, is that your, your wandering gets stuck then it gets bouncing off the room to really extend this metaphor a bit. And then you never come back to the kind of intensity that you might come into a classroom. Because I think it's a presumption that students want to learn. I take it as a presumption that everyone wants to learn. And so you and so what happens in a classroom, I think, is that that attention just drifts you from that initial impulse. But when you're outside, you have these soft fascinations, maybe like a squirrel running away or a bird flying or I don't know leaves rustling, you might need some kind of distraction for a while, you might need a little break, and your attention can just follow, and I've seen students do this, follow, just follow that bird for a few seconds, and it exhausts itself. And then they come back to the conversation with a kind of energy and focus that allows us to maintain those kind of intense educational experiences, I guess. I'm hearing you talk about the ways in which individuals may cultivate greater attention through a counterintuitive thing where I, I have, my mind has gone away with the bird and now I have flowed back to that center of the, of, of what's being explored. I imagine there would also be ways in which the class may do that a little bit more collectively. I'm, ima- I'm remembering a, a time <laughs> we had quite a collective experience indoors in a classroom a lizard had gotten inside and that was hysterical because you, I had discovered a little scientific experiment, so <laughs> sociology, I guess, would be you either run away from or to the lizard. You don't have neutral feelings about the <laughs> but I discovered yeah. that day. And so we have that shared experience. I mean, this this has been almost two decades, I think, since those people would have been in that room, but I bet you that they probably remember it. I mean, especially the, the guy who held the lizard, his name's Ian and whatever I would touch base with him, we will often return to him <laughs> holding the lizard up. That could also be, by the way, because there's a photo of it and it shows up on the photo memory sometimes for me on my phone. I realize the ways in which photos affect our memories, uh, for, speaking of good and bad. <laughs> but I do think there is those collective 
experiences where where some sort of distraction could be called good because what we've actually done is formed a shared memory of our learning community. Would you do anything come to mind uh, as far as your shared learning memories in classes? All the time. That's what's one of the you know, other really fun things about it is that what counts as a classroom when you're outside now is open to creation, right? So that when you're inside, you don't have to set up the borders of the classroom. They're just there, right? But outside, you have to think about well, where do we end? Like how far can, apart can we be? And how close can we be? And so what, in other words, the borders of a classroom are now very, very porous. And if they're very, very porous, then you have to constantly be, I'm going I'm to keep harping this world, maybe attending to them. And as they change or not, and as they're constantly porous and constantly changing, the external classroom world, which is now just on the other side of an invisible line, now is intensifying our sense of self, our sense of togetherness, our sense of, of, of a class. And two examples may way of, of describing this. One would be the animal one, which is now we constantly have animals in our classroom. I, I This is not a joke, but I have hawks always in my classroom, right? So, and this is a joke. I find it interesting that hawks seem to really like hearing about Spinoza. <laughs> but in that Spinoza class, one time we were sitting there and I heard like 10 feet behind me a noise. And what happened was a, a hawk actually was attacking a squirrel. And then that took some time <laughs> before <laughs> that, that was over. Um, oh, no. But like your lizard, you can bet we talked about that hawk <laughs> for the rest of the semester, right? And that had that sense of shared. Like, no, we had this thing. And because this gets to the introductory thing, the improvisational nature of it. I'm, I, I'm, I think that improvisation is one of the highest forms of thinking. And so my classrooms are always improvisatory, which is partially my love of jazz. And so having those spontaneous things, those improvisational things as encounters that we now have to respond that I didn't plan, no one planned, now we have to respond to them and we can only respond to them together so they become ours. And as we have a, a shared thing, we become closer knit. Another way that happens is not only encounters with nature, especially unplanned ones at those porous borders, but also with people. So people are constantly walking by because we're outside. And what that happens then is that sometimes we'll be having a conversation about something. And maybe it's a topic that I know a little about. Then I'll see the professor who's expert in that walk by and say, hey, come here. We have, and then I'll say, hey, class, well, ask, ask her. She's actually an expert in, you know, in African religion. So why don't you ask this question to her? And then now the class begins to speak to an other as we and have that kind of conversation. Again, calling attention to ourselves as, as a collective. Or I'll see students from other classes who know I'm outside because people are constantly seeing me. Everyone like on campus is like, oh, I saw your class. Oh, I saw your class. Oh, I saw your class. And then students hear that too. And they're like, oh, I saw your class. Oh, I saw your class. And I start to really think about that sense of what it means to be, to be a we. And that then means that I have constantly changing visitors. And this would be, was really, <laughs> might say, exacerbated or intensified at the beginning of last semester because it's kind of complex. But so this, my last semester was the spring and then the fall before I, I don't tell, give students exams. They have to create exams and then do them. And one of their exams was to plan a class 
for the first day of the next semester. So the end of the fall semester, plan the class for the first day of the next semester of the same class, and then come to class pretending to be students in that class. But the other students didn't know that. And they did that for several days. So for like two weeks, no, the students who were actually in the class didn't know who was actually in the class. And so they're constantly asking the question, the philosophical question, the thing that makes a we a we, who are we? And so that's, that, that, that constant phrasing of that was then echoed with the porousness of borders, with the encounters with animals and other visitors, with propositional experiences. And maybe the last one I'll mention since you mentioned photos is that tours now always come by our class. <laughs> so touring parents are coming by and seeing like this model, like what they imagine is the perfect example of liberal arts classroom. And people are constantly taking photos and sharing them. And so there's photos of us all around the internet. <laughs> so you, I'm, I'm really frightened for my mixing metaphors because it's about to go even deeper, Ryan. Are you ready? For <laughs> so I want to, I want to repeat some phrases that I'm, I'm gleaning from what you're sharing. So you talked about borders being porous. You also used the word boundaries as a synonym, I believe, for borders. Then you talked about jazz, and mm. I'm going to add in another one because I do love jazz. I also love the dancing that is performed and has been performed in history with jazz. One type of dancing would be the Lindy Hop, which mm -hmm. is um, done. And so when we think about improvisation, when we think about jazz, think about swing dancing, the Lindy Hop, there is something, or improvisation in, in general. You talked about the improvisational nature of teaching and, and learning. So there is something that's holding it together. It isn't that there are no boundaries. Yeah. It isn't that there is nothing in jazz that you can be assured is holding you there with a piece of music. So so there's the 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 downbeat and I mean we are my even if we don't know music enough to know what those things are called, there is the safety and the rest in knowing that. And when musicians don't have that, then it certainly creates that dissonance, which can be fun too, by the way, to, to experience. But I, I do think that you mentioned talking about race a lot in your classes. So I, I'm wondering at which point does the feeling of safety and solace need to be considered as we are taking risks with experimenting with new language and new ideas and wanting to make sure that our language matches with our values being stretched and challenged in the ways that yeah. we might in a good liberal arts education. Right. Yeah. The two things I hear in that good question is structure and safety. And the safety one's a little easier to deal with because, you know, this is a kind of truism, but safe spaces are always not safe for everyone, not equally safe, right? There are space for some people. And we have institutions like a predominantly white institution. The safety is those who are predominant, right? So safe spaces are not what I'm after, the, you know, the cliche and I don't. I think it's. I think it works, but it's, it's cliche. It is. I cultivate not safe spaces, but brave spaces. Right, spaces where you can screw up, where you can say the wrong thing, and have a generous hearing. And generous hearing might mean forgiving, but it might also mean being called to task. <laughs> and weighing that in a predominantly white institution, especially as a white man myself, is a very complicated thing. It's totally possible and needs to be done if you actually believe it's true. And people who think that that's not 
possible just don't believe it and don't care enough so so i care and i've been doing that for for many many years especially when i moved to the south i'm from the north of the us and i moved to the south my wife is an immigrant and i started to study with with black black philosophers so through years of cultivating very minor things the smallest of things gestures phrases intonation are important for cultivating those spaces that are brave and generous and the way to do that, I think, the best way to do that is just you cultivate intimacies. So from, from day one, we're thinking about the nature of relationships. We're getting people, students, I hate to use an economic metaphor, but invested in each other and to make those relationships tighter and more trusting. And as that trust and as that intimacy occurs, that's when those kind of risks, that's when those kind of feelings of safety or safe enough to take the risk and be to be to hear hard truths or hear things that may be uncomfortable for them begin to really occur so anyways, that's the first thing and what's interesting about the outside nature of that is that there's a kind of seeming informality a kind of this gets in the structure question a kind of seeming openness or not even seeming literal <laughs> openness right because now the boundaries or borders or are, are are the horizon <laughs> so that nature, I think students have said, make them feel far more comfortable discussing these kind of things. So rather than the intensity of like fluorescent lights in a brick or cement classroom, talking these things in places that are just naturally, just make us feel better and rejuvenating and more comfortable are far better for that. So having tough conversations, cultivating embrace spaces, I found to be far better outside. The second question about the structure and the, not the lack of structure, I think the only thing I would add here, because you, you said it really well, is the way in which improvisation can be structured. In fact, improvisation must be structured in some way. The question is the source and the timing of the structure. So I often try to create classrooms as space uh, structures through which students' energies can come in and then to create and adapt those structures. So I like to create the classroom structure with them or kind of co-construction. So there's definitely structure. I just don't impose it or I offer it and then I allow it to be to, to adapt and to, to bend. And maybe the example of this is that from the first few days of each class I have outside, which are all of them, we try out different parts of campus and see which classes like which places more. And we eventually, a few weeks in, end up finding a place that we we really do like. Even we would try other ones maybe later on, we'll keep coming back to that. And so we'll begin to have located the borders of the structures of us in this this space or this area of campus. Mm. And I imagine that you are in, I mean, you already described this, how the last class brings some things into the next class and that your own it's not like you're saying, hey, does anyone have any ideas of anywhere? I, I've never <laughs> been to Elon, but I imagine it's not a tiny campus. And so you have some ideas, but yet you're knowing and recognizing that each person is different and each class learning community is different. And you're bringing that wisdom into the experience. You use the word horizon, and I can't help but quote from your piece on, on this topic, which is in the show notes. You quote one student talking about this experience, learning outside. When I am inside, I just can't see, but outside my vision and thinking expand to the horizon. Love that. 
Before we get to the recommendation segment, there's one other thing I'd like to ask you about, and that is the history of teaching philosophy as a public art. I imagine you have already touched on many of these themes, but anything else that you want to share just about this area of history and how it connects with how we do things today and also how we don't do things today? Yeah, there's this kind of obvious thing, which is that learning happened long before we had spaces we call learning where they should happen, right? Like on record, we had schools, right? So, and that can be not only the kind of thing we might consider education today, but I take lots of inspiration from other models of learning. In fact, I have a, a, a friend of mine, Becky Bernabidian at a Foster Regis in Colorado, and I write a paper about apprenticeships. So about thinking about philosophy, uh, learning philosophy as an apprentice-based, apprentice model kind of thing. So of course, apprenticeships have been happen all over the place too, and often in public and farms and fields or whatever. Or of course, the, the more classic model of Socrates having conversations in the Agora, in the open, and outside of Athens, in the port, or Buddha under the, the Bodhi tree, or like all of, all of, like walking is another really very public way of, of, of learning. So there's a long history of that. And of course, there's other um there's just the nature of what, what it means for public education, education to be public, right? Like, I know I'm in Canada right now, and the private versus public education is very different than it is in the U.S. And I'm, I know I'm using, I'm leaning into the different senses of public versus private there. But I don't, but I, I mean it. Like, there's, who is the education for? <laughs> for the people, right? Um, the way I'm using it is drawing upon all those traditions and all those histories and with the nature of saying, with that, with the added emphasis of saying, we are learning in public, not just for ourselves, but for the public, right? That education isn't simply about this kind of neoliberal, I'm improving my CV or I'm improving my, my value, but about doing it for others, doing it for the public. And, and when you're also when you're on campus, you're in very public view, and they want to connect their individual learning to all those other things to all those other people and to to the community in general. Mm, so powerful. And and yes, of course, we do, when we set up these borders, we get some unintended consequences that, that happen. Mm. And I mean, in a sense of false safety, I think. I think teaching and learning are very intimate things to, to have happen, and yet that feels terrifying sometimes. And so... There are, I won't name them, but there are campuses around the country which are literally walled and have guards. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'll leave it at that. <laughs> That's <laughs> question for question about, about education is for the value of the, of the individual and the public. Well, someone's rejecting something there. This is the time in the show where we each get to share recommendations. I love the recommendation segment because there's such a feeling of serendipity, and people tell me so regularly how much they love. They never know what's coming. Well, I feel like I have the recommendation that just <laughs> draws upon so many themes that we've talked about. And so back on episode 457, Carrie Mandelek recommended this app called the Merlin Bird app. Merlin, I think it's the name of the app, but Merlin Bird ID. And at the time I thought like my my parents have been really into bird watching. And so, but it was kind of like, oh, that's other people's thing. And that's so nice of Carrie to recommend that, but that's not really something that I'm about. And then I ended up seeing a story about it. And I was like, hang on a second, because I really, one of the recommendations I have had in past episodes was to get outside. And I spoke about my now uh, cultivated habit of sitting in our backyard. And I love eating a 
bowl of oatmeal and being outside, even even because I think sometimes I think, oh, and to go into nature, I have to go for a hike. And it's like, no, you actually have. Yes, it, I live in a suburb, but you do have nature in your backyard. There are hummingbirds. There are things like that. And so it came to me anew where I thought, let me just, I didn't realize that you could actually just on this app, you just press a button and it will listen yeah. for the birds that are around you. You download a database of birds within a large region. I believe mine was California and Washington, if, if I'm remembering correctly about the map that it showed me before it downloaded on my phone. But I w- I've just now twice been able to be sitting back there. And it. I think so often our phones can be a distraction and it might be like, why would you m- ruin this moment in nature when, and you know, pull your phone out. But for mm-hmm. me, since I don't sit there for that long, mm-hmm. it actually in a weird way helped center me and listen, mm-hmm. which I don't find that experience very often with my phone, but I found myself really wanting to listen for the birds. And the yeah. first day I tried it, they did suggest to you that you don't just rely on the sound of the bird and its ability to identify that, but it also suggested that you have a visual indication. Mm-hmm. And I didn't do it the first day. It talked about a hummingbird, and then I didn't end up seeing that exact hummingbird. But I thought, I've seen those exact, I know I see those all the time in our backyard. But this morning I was back there and it talked about a, a wren. And I, so I'm listening so, so very carefully. And then I look and I, it's right there. It's right there. And I'm seeing it on the app and, it, and I'm hearing its beautiful bird song. And the nice yeah. thing about it is you can keep a life list, which of course, in this case, it's my 52-year-old and some months life list. <laughs> there are now three birds on them as of today. But oh, yeah. I do I do appreciate that just ability to sort of travel some different places, even if it's just, you know, traveling down to, we live somewhat near the beach, go down to the beach. And what are the different birds that I might be able to collect their songs and their images in this, in this app. And it just, so I, I love being able to go back and revisit other people's, other people's recommendations. And then just to be able to see them anew with my own context and my own challenges of really wanting to attend to life in more ways of full presence. And it really did just help me have that full presence. And I'm so intrigued by the whole, it's the Cornell Research or Ornithology Research Lab. And so there's all these different things that are connected with it where they do a bird count. And I mean, it's so it's very scientifically based, but as a total hobbyist, I'm having a blast and would recommend that people check it out, even if you don't think you're a bird person. But I I just found it lovely. And I, I feel like it ties to so many of the things that you and you and I just had a chance to talk about. So I'm going to pass it over to you for whatever you'd like to reflect on, because I did just talk about a bird app and maybe you, yeah. maybe this is new to you, but also for whatever you have to recommend today. Yeah, it's funny that you say that because I was just recommended that too. Oh my God. <laughs> um, last week, I'm trying to remember who it was. I think it was this, I can't remember who it was, but it's weird. If you start spending your time outside, like in a place that people don't normally spend that time outside. So basically, I get to campus, and I'm out. I get to campus usually early, like at 8 a.m. I'm usually there until like 8 p.m. Not every day, but many days. And I'm outside pretty much the entire time. So it's just so strange the kind of things you notice. And of course, the things you notice are the birds. Like, so I know when the hawks are upon which part of campus at which hour of the day. I know when these kind of birds are happening on there, and I know when the vultures came in. And so, like, I, it's just. My whole orientation actually lifted up. It was strange. And, and I partially this because we have these, a lot of my classes happen around fire pits. They put these fire pits on campus and there's Adirondack chairs. 
although in Canada they call them Muskoka chairs, but uh, <laughs> but they're they're like they're back like this, right? And I, I'm firmly believe that anironic chairs are the best kind of chair for having good philosophical conversations. Mm. And so my whole orientation on campus is slightly up, and it's lifting that whatever kind of version of your your perspective is lifting it like that. It's totally transformed my whole way of a. Uh, so I'm walking around the campus people. I'm looking up, and everyone else is like, "Where are you? Where are you looking?" I'm like, oh, there's this bird over here. Um, so, anyways, yes to the well, bird. You just told me name why I like it so much because I have been so enjoying sitting in the backyard. That is a really peaceful tradition that I find. But uh, yeah, I'd hear birds chirping, but that's where it would end. I didn't know what kind of bird it was. I didn't. I mean, so now now it just opens up a whole universe for paying attention at a far more precise level. And I suspect, Ryan, that I will begin to notice patterns like you you just described. That, mm-hmm. uh, and, and then it'll be fun, too, to try different places and different times of the day and that kind of thing. Yeah, thank you for that, helping me oh. name that, why, why it was so. It really, I think, is going to help me notice things more and be more present in a, in a new way. And so, technology so rarely does that for me. So. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's, that's, a, that's a totally not. Uh, technology often distracts me is what I would like to say. It does help me notice a lot of things. Sometimes too yeah. much. Things is right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. There yeah. can be bad distractions. I guess on that, on that note, I, there's no technology in my classes outside. Mm-hmm. So it's books, paper and pencils and person. Mm. That's it. And it's very funny near the end of the semester when the students are starting to do their, create their exams and they will bring out the, their phone. They're like, this feels weird. They feel bad, like there's habit and they, they appreciate it. They love the rule, even if there, it's hard to, and it's technology. It can be good, or bad. Is that, a, is that a rule that you instill or is that something that you invite them to instill together? That's something that you do come in. And yeah. Say. So there's ba- there's a couple of ones that I, I, I just set up that. I, I set up that on. The other ones are about how you orient your body. Mm. Actually, for like really simple one is when you talk, don't just look at me. Mm. students often just look at the teacher and I'll do it in such a way that I'll actually like hide behind a chair so they don't so they can't look at me but no, things like that mm. uh, I was gonna offer three just little suggestions or recommendations yeah. um the first one is since we talked about Coltrane and since the ne- my next book is structured like a Coltrane album the and he's a North Carolina person uh a love supreme is one of the best albums of all time and particularly Interesting is the new version of it, which has the, there's only two known recorded live recordings of them. There's one they know about from 65 in France, but then in 2008, someone found in this guy's basement recordings of the Seattle version of it. And on the new, the comprehensive or whatever they call it, the complete version of it, they have that. And it is crazy and amazing. And speaking of improvisation, some of the people that he played with, the band is usually four people. There are other people with this band. They didn't know the music. So then they were <laughs> playing it as they were just they're going along. Um, and it's wild. Song. Yeah. So that Seattle performance of The Love Supreme. The other one, it was going to be, there's a movie that came out I think last year, two years ago, called Three Minutes a Lengthening. And it, what it was is, I think this man in Texas, or somebody in Texas, somewhere in the US, found these, these 16 millimeter film recordings spools in their basement and couldn't really discern what they were like from the 40s somewhere in Europe. And then he posted, shared them with the 
the Holocaust Museum in DC and they put them on their website. And then they started to figure out, people started to talk about, see it and watch it and say, oh, the, I, like they identify people in it. And what it ended up being was like about three minutes of color, a film of a t- small town in Poland the year before the Nazis came in and destroyed it. And what they then do is they they kind of see like a detective activity where they try to identify where it is, who the people are, what happened to them after the war. happened, to, And so it's this beautiful archival forensic hunt for these identities. And it's goes from taking a three-minute film into a full feature length. And the last one is one I actually haven't read yet, but talking about improvisational things, I rarely teach books I've read. <laughs> I learn with them. I read with them. I model the learning rather than the knowing. And so I'm about to have a class, of course, outside, and it's going to be only on Black music. And I'm beginning with Angela Davis, the great philosopher Angela Davis, her book, Blues, Legacies, and Black Feminism, Gertrude Ma Rainey, Bessie Smith, and Billie Holiday. That'll be the opening text for that. And in that class, speaking about attention, we're going to have listening sessions in the middle of class in between our intense conversations. And so I just bought, or Elon just bought for me, an outdoor speaker so that we can now listen to music outside because, of course, listening to outside and listening inside are very different experiences. Oh, wow. I was right as you were describing it, I thought, oh, I hope there's a soundtrack for this one. (laughs) That sounds amazing. Well, that's part of the idea is that every day there's going to be a a student DJ who's going to select songs. They're going to refer or extrapolate from the reading and they're going to build up the soundtrack. And the final exam, I hope, will be some kind of party, listening party, where we go through and listen to all the songs and then uh, this is the kind of the call to attention of who we are, who we become, and then see, like, listen, like, move through our actual song history and try to define define ourselves. That sounds incredibly powerful. I am so grateful to be in touch with you, Ryan. I hope this is just the first conversation of many because I feel like I, I kept having to sit here and discipline myself and say, don't ask him about it. Don't ask him about <laughs> it. But what a wonderful first conversation with you that I hope becomes one of many, you have so much to give and fun to also bring the discipline of philosophy. I've done a lot of episodes with STEM in the titles and lots of episodes with other disciplines. And it's fun to to have, I mean, not that I haven't had philosophers, but I mean, just to have that in a title and to be thinking about it in a way that is, of course, very relevant for your discipline, but also really for everyone. Because as you said, this is kind of how so much of this all began. So what a joy to know you and to, for all that you brought to the conversation today. Thank you for your generosity. Oh, it's totally my pleasure. It's a delight to talk to you and your Tavis podcast. And I would welcome anyone who hears this, who wants to talk to really reach out. Love talking and talk, talking and teaching. Yes. And I will say Ryan shared a story before we began recording about meeting his co-author in, in a, you know, a conference and, and then like he he really actually has lots of evidence to what he just said being very true about him as a as a scholar in terms of your curiosity and humility to want to collaborate with others what what a fun thing that that is thank you so much thanks once again to Ryan Johnson for joining me for today's episode about teaching philosophy outside thanks to each of you for listening today's episode was produced by me Bonnie Stahoviak. It was edited by the ever-talented Andrew Kroger. Podcast production support was provided by the amazing Sierra Smith. 
If you've been listening for a while and haven't subscribed to the weekly update, you can receive the show notes from the most recent episode, along with other things that don't show up, such as quotable words, related episodes, specifically curated by me for that episode, and some other goodies. So head on over to teachinginhighered.com slash subscribe. And thanks so much for being a part of the teaching and learning community. See you next time.